So how are we doing on a scale of one to 10? Maybe we're at a two or three right now. Could we do a hell of a lot better? Yes, we could do a lot better. How do we get there? We get there by reorienting our society and our culture to the true purpose of education, which is all about unleashing the potential of each and every kid. It's not about sorting and ranking and measuring against a common benchmark. It's about ensuring that every student becomes the best version of themselves. That is Meredith Olson. I'm Dwayne Lester. And this is Top Priority. Hello, everyone, and thank you for taking the time to download and listen to another installment of Top Priority a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today we're going to be talking about foundational education with Meredith Olson. But before we get to that, I want to encourage you, if you haven't taken the time, go and rate and review Top Priority on iTunes. Uh, Tell us what you think. Hexit123 went ahead and gave us five stars and in the review wrote this podcast is informative about current issues. It's a talk about pressing current political questions of the day. Curious about DACA? Want to know more about current problems with our criminal justice system that should be reformed? Those issues and others are addressed in this show. What are the current barriers to prosperity and freedom? What are ongoing injustices that are causing much friction? Chances are you will find an episode of this show taking an in-depth look at those issues. One of those issues facing parents and students all across this country is the state of foundational education. And Meredith Olson is the VP of the Foundational Education Priority Initiative for the Stand Together community. We talked for almost an hour. It was it was a really great discussion about something that's really foundational for the future of this country and the future of the world, really. I hope you enjoy it. First, let's just start with telling me a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in in this specific priority initiative. Yeah, great question. So, um, my background, you know, what's really interesting is everyone has a unique and winding path in life. And I would say that my background is is no different than anyone else's. So I, I started my career, my my background was in, in engineering. I worked in construction. Um, I then moved into various roles in finance and operations. And along the way, ended up career switching into community affairs. And so, you know, how does that end up happening? Well, it happens because as we grow and develop in our lives, opportunities present themselves and you seize the moment. So I did that about, I want to say that was about 10 years ago now. And so I started managing corporate community affairs for Coke Industries. And then, you know, what that meant was that 
we were trying and we continue to try to be a good corporate citizen, a strong community partner, a preferred partner in the communities where the company has assets and operations. And we express our, our philanthropy and our investments um, by investing in things that are true to our principles. So meaning our goals have always been and to help develop human potential in the communities where we live and work. And so much of the investment that I was responsible for for leading at Coke had to do with education and human development. And so about five years ago, there was an opportunity that presented itself to build from the ground up an education capability within the Stand Together community that would be focused on the K-12 through education space. So really the, the foundational and formative part of education for young people. So uh, I moved into an opportunity, this was at the end of 2015, to, um, to work with the leadership of the Stand Together community to develop a vision, to better understand the market, develop point of view, on you know what opportunities um, could we work together with partners in order to create value in the education space, and so we have been activating um, through our investments in communities, in policy, and in programs for the last five years. It is it is interesting the path that we take because a lot of that comes from. That, that foundational education and recognizing that we all have these innate talents that we can build on as long as we continue and engage in in lifelong learning. Now, one thing I want to, I want to ask you about, when I first started working with uh, the K-12 Priority Initiative, it was called the K-12 Priority Initiative. Recently, I was told we're no longer calling it K-12, we're calling it Foundational Education. Could you help me understand, I think I understand, but I want everyone to understand why that name change was necessary. Great question. So learning is something that happens over the course of your life. It, it never stops, right? So it, it starts at birth, it ends at the end of your life. And so when, when we box in education into, into segments, so, so in other words, when we box education into K-12 that implies that it's a defined period with a beginning and an end. And that learning essentially spans from the time you're in kindergarten to the time you graduate from high school. And at that point, it's done and, and you're over. So we intentionally changed the name of the initiative to foundational education because really what we're talking about, we're talking about that type of formative education where children and youth have many different alternatives to transform their lives. And how do they do that? They do that by discovering and developing their innate abilities. Why do they do that? They do that so that they can self-actualize and succeed by living a life of meaning, contribution, and purpose. That's how you end up getting to a fulfilling life. And so when we think about foundational education, it's that type of formative educational experience that prepares students for this lifetime of learning throughout their lives. So if, if we see that happening in many different parts of your life, that happens in school, it happens outside of school, it happens in the home, it happens through the experiences that you have with others, we don't want to box education into something that just happens inside of a school. And similarly, we don't want to box education into something that only happens during those K-12 through years. 
when, when when it was explained to me, I really I really liked it because it reminded me. We were talking uh, before we started recording about how the fact that I currently have seven kids in the house right now, and you said, "Do you homeschool them?" And I replied, "Of course, no. My wife homeschools them. I travel for a li- <laughs> for a living." Um, but right now, everybody's homeschooling. When we first started homeschooling, uh, one of the one of the objections that I commonly heard was, well, you're not, you're not trained. You're not qualified to, to teach kids. And I would look at them and I, I was always a little bit, uh, startled by the arrogance of that and the condescension of that. But then I would say, well, that's interesting. Who taught them to walk and who taught them to talk and who taught them their manners and who taught them not to do these things, but to do these things. And who's taught them everything that they know that's made them a person up until age five. I'm pretty sure that that was me and my wife and our family and our community. That is foundational education. That is that is the important stuff that I'm glad to see included in this this priority initiative. I also like the change because I think it takes away from the mindset of K through 12 being a brick and mortar place. Because when you think of K through 12, you think of you know, you think of big schools, big buildings, but foundational education gets gets such a much wider view of what's going on here. It isn't just what happens at school. It's what happens after school. It's what happens at the dinner table. It's what you take your kids to see on the weekends. This is all an important part of foundational education. So you're making you're making a really important point here. So there's a very distinct difference between education and schooling. And these are terms that are often thrown around as though they're synonyms, but they're not. So schooling is something that happens, it's an activity that happens uh, within the four walls of the classroom, generally with a very defined scope and sequence, with standards, with assessments, and with some sort of common benchmark for evaluation purposes. That's schooling. And schooling tends to be very common. This is an activity that... um, that elevates conformity and elevates compliance. Education is altogether different. So education is not confined to the four walls of the classroom. Education is about human development. It's about, you know, developing every individual person's unique and individualized talents so that they can find what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses, what do they want to do with their, with their lives. How are they going to enable success on their own terms? How are they going to become the best version of themselves? And that type of education happens all day long. It happens inside the classroom. It happens outside of the classroom. And it happens through a wide range and variety of experiences. You know, there's a quote. That's, so that's, definitely, yeah. There's a quote that's commonly attributed to Mark Twain. There's some who say that Grant Allen said it first. But it's, I never let my schooling interfere with my education. And I think that goes to right what you're saying. Absolutely. So w- before we get into what we believe good looks like, why don't you tell tell me, help me understand why this is such a passionate issue for you? Oh, wow. Okay, education is a passionate issue for me because I just, uh, something that motivates me more than anything else is just insatiable curiosity and a desire to learn and and acquire knowledge. I mean, I love to learn by doing, by experiencing, by 
by uh, engaging in projects, by building things. I mean, I, I mentioned before I worked in, in construction. I love to see a project through from beginning to end. And the only way you can do that, because every project is different, is to break apart the pieces, tackle them one by one, and learn in order to accomplish each one of the, the component parts. So for me personally, learning is just an invigorating experience. And then um, professionally, I just think about I think about the ability to impact so many people, so many people's lives. And so, imagine if we move from a system where instead of valuing conformity or putting every single student on the quote straight path, where you know every student is geared towards a similar set of ends. What if instead we allowed every student to individualize their education so that they were energized by the path that they were on? We would have a much more flourishing society if we had people digging in and developing their strengths in order to achieve their fullest potential. And our current system limits the ability for students to do that because it instead value sorting and ranking against a common benchmark rather than maximizing the individual potential of each student. We, as I mentioned, we, we homeschool. One of the things that we've done that leads right to what you're saying is unschooling. And this is the idea that I'll let, I, I let my kids really focus in on what they find really exciting and they will dig into this. And had I not, had my children not been allowed to have that flexibility, that that openness in their education. I don't know that my son Jake would have the passion for nature that he does. I mean, the kids, he's not even in, in junior high, but he's also talking about what he's going to do when he's a park ranger and how he's going to work in conservation. And the thing, you know, we'll be driving to church and it'll be like, red-tailed hawk, look, there's a quail, there's a raccoon. I'm like, dude, what? And he's spotting all the things in nature. And it's, it's that, it's that, openness in his education that has allowed that now let's get into if you don't if, if you don't mind talk about what good looks like in education basically the vision that you help create for foundational education what is it that that good looks like what are we trying to to achieve here great question so what we're trying to achieve in education is we're trying to move from a place where students are educated in a very standardized way and move to a place and a culture and a paradigm for education where every student, the purpose of education is to help every student discover and develop their unique talents, their unique aptitudes, so that they can apply their talents in order to learn, acquire the necessary knowledge, skills, and values so that they can live a fulfilling life. So that's our goal. That's a very different goal than the goal of many education systems today. How does that how does that differ? You said it conformed. Explain to what what the problems, some of the problems you see in foundational education today. Is it is it just let me let me throw this at you. I saw I saw a comic once that really hit me and it was kids going into a school with like round heads. It was a cartoon. They're going into this this school with round heads. They're coming out the other side and they all have square heads. They're all the same. The school is basically the cartoon is basically saying school has made all these kids the same. Um they've all got them 
in, a, in their own mindset. They're not individualizing them. Is that the problem you see where we where we have an education system that doesn't see individuals but sees, I don't know, like a what what do they see? You tell me. Sure. So this is a great question. You know, what we see in education today is very much a legacy of how our education systems have evolved over the last 150 years or thereabouts. So, you know, I would say in the late 1800s, there was a standardization effort that was underway in our country. Um, this effort was led by leading academics at some of the leading research universities in the country at the time. And the goal was to develop a plan for education such that every student would acquire the same knowledge to the same extent and in the same way. So consistency was the goal. And why was that? So at the time, you had, you know, in American society, in American society, about one third of students were destined for the farm, about a third of students were destined for the factory, and a third of students were destined for liberal higher education. Okay? So the theory was that if we had in America a system of common public schools where every student was educated in the same way and to the same extent, in the same series of subjects, then they would be equipped coming out of their primary and secondary education ready for a life of work either in the farm, the factory, or in higher education. So that was the thinking at the time. So we've evolved since that time, but the primary way that we've evolved is to improve the efficiency with how we deliver education because our country has grown, our country has become um, more diverse and more plural, but yet there has been a reliance on this guiding principle of educating students in the same way and, and to the same extent so that they can be ready and have the foundation for a life regardless of their career path. So I think we would say that these were noble goals. However, are they fit for purpose for a modern time? Are they fit for purpose for a society where we are radically customized? Every part of our world today is customized and tailored and specialized to the individual, right, in order to maximize individualized potential. And so we would say that our education systems need to evolve accordingly. And that in doing so, if we are able to evolve our education systems, we are going to find a greater portion of the population that will be fulfilled, right? Because they're, they're, they're leaning into balance and they're better able to self-actualize. So the inherent problems with our current systems is that they were designed around standardization and efficiency. And then the goal of the system is to sort, rank, and measure in order to steer students into a predetermined career path. We would say the purpose of education is to create an environment that comes alongside students so that they can individualize on their own terms so that they are empowered to pursue the life that they want to live. So it's a very different paradigm about the role and the purpose of education. It sounds like what you're saying is we have teachers all across the country who go through high you know they go through college they get their teaching certificate they get licensed they go to work at these these schools and their whole goal i mean up until this point their whole life has been about making a difference in these schools and helping children become the best 
version of themselves they can. And they, they go into these systems with, with great aspirations, but the system itself is actually what's limiting the opportunities. It's what's, it's what's limiting the capabilities of, of the best teachers in the country. Is, is that, is that an, an accurate assessment? Yes, it's definitely an accurate assessment. I mean, men and women who make a decision to enter the teaching profession do so because they love children and they want to have a hand in, in the development of those children so that those children can become successful adults um, and fulfilled adults. So, you know, teachers are in it for the right reasons. They're committed to their craft. Um, but in many ways, teachers are limited in their ability to serve the children who are in their in their care. And so our perspective is that, you know, just as we believe that every student should be able to develop uh, and follow their own path, we believe that teachers should be empowered to provide the necessary nurturing care and development that they're working with. And so in too many respects, teachers are limited in their ability to do that. So, you know, we work um, we work very hard through the Stand Together community on teacher outreach through organizations like the Bill of Rights Institute and youth entrepreneurs in order to empower teachers so that they can be fulfilled and really transform the lives of the of the children with whom they work. So, the Stand Together community vision is: we break barriers that stand in the way of people realizing their potential. This moves our society towards one of mutual benefit, where people succeed by helping others improve their lives. When you look at the vision that, that the Stand Together community has for foundational education, can you, can you help me understand how this vision breaks barriers? And I think we've talked a bit about what those barriers are, the barriers being found in a system that was created, you know, last, what, two centuries ago or something. We're looking at an old system that has created all kinds of barriers. How does this, this vision break down those barriers? In its ideal, every student would have equal access to whatever educational options were best for him or her. And in many ways, the design of our public education systems, they serve as um, a gatekeeper where public education can be either a gateway to opportunity to students or it can present a barrier to opportunities for students. So too often times schools are in the position of creating winners and losers among kindergartners. This is a problem. And so much of what we try to do is uh, with our, our policy work as well as our program work is to remove those barriers to opportunity wherever and however they exist. When we talk about the four mutually reinforcing principles, the first one, of course, is always equal rights. A system of equal rights articulated in the Declaration of Independence requires respect for the dignity of all people and equality mm -hmm. under the law. When you and your team were putting together the vision for foundational education, how did equal rights enter into that? And how should we look at the vision through this lens? So at a very top line, we believe that every single student is different. We believe that every single student has talents. They are different. They have talents. We believe that individuals should be trusted, meaning families, parents, students, and educators should be trusted to make decisions that are in the best interests of their children. 
And therefore, we believe that every student should have access to the options that enable him or her to develop into the person they were meant to become. So it starts with a belief in people and a trust in people and then a desire to enable a diversity of options such that every student is able to self-actualize. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, when we think about equal rights, it means that every student should have equal access on equal terms to any educational option. Are you saying they don't now? They don't, no. So in, in America today, more than 70% of students attend their residentially assigned school, their residentially assigned public school. So, you know, you may have a desire, if you're a student, you may have a desire to attend a different type of a school or to pursue your education in a different way. But for 71% of students in America, their education is predetermined based solely on their home address. You know, as we're thinking about it, it's just this it's this idea of every student having equal access on equal terms to whatever education will work best for them. And it should not depend on their zip code, should not depend on their race, their ethnicity, should not depend on their their, you know, who they know, their home address, their income. Um, all of those factors should should be disqualified as factors for any kind of educational enrollment decision that a student would need to make. You've talked a lot about the, the rights of the student. What about the rights of the parent? Does that enter into the vision at all? Yeah, I would say that when we when we speak um, when we talk about empowering individuals in education, it's really the family unit. So that would be the the caregivers, me, me you know, the, the father, the grandparent, whoever has primary responsibility for a child, together with the child. So it's that family unit that should be empowered. Excellent. Excellent. When when the values of law and society respect the dignity of individuals and uphold their rights. People succeed by creating value for others, motivating them to assist rather than to harm one another. That's how we define mutual benefit. When you look at foundational education, how is there mutual benefit in the vision that you all have created? Yeah, so this mutual benef benefit flows from having equal access. So, um, you know, in education, families should be free to pursue the type of education that works best for their children. And educators should be free to adapt and innovate to meet the needs of those very same students. So it's really about families and educators coming together to develop solutions that nurture the growth of children, right? And that can happen in many, many different ways, but it doesn't necessarily happen in a top-down way. This can only happen in a bottom-up approach where you have families and educators coming together to the benefit of students. And that's a, a, a voluntary exchange that happens. That's a mutually beneficial voluntary exchange versus a pre-prescribed mandated solution that determines uh, how an educator should teach, how they should practice their craft, and how um, students should receive their education. I, I think it's also important to recognize the, the mutual benefit between foundational education and the other key institutions also. I mean, the, the other key institutions being community, being business, being government, um, these all benefit, all the institutions benefit when education is operating in its proper role, when it's doing things that it should do, when it's allowing people to excel and to, to find their best version of themselves. There's mutual benefit across all the key institutions also. 
um, openness, equal yeah, rights. Yeah, and to that, oh, please, and go to that ahead. end, um, on mutual benefit, uh, the Stand Together community has been involved in, in bringing together multiple constituents on the issue of education. Now, why is that? So let's think about the business community. Well, the institution of business has a strong interest in ensuring that a that workforce is developed and trained in order to meet the demands of business, right? And so education plays a key role in preparing the workforce of today and tomorrow. So it, as a community, we have the opportunity to bring business and educators, business leaders and educators together to help determine what are those solutions that are going to create the greatest value in a community. So, you know, oftentimes the business voice is silent in education matters, but we see a real role for the business community to play. When I was in Indiana talking about the, the vision, walking through a training, education came up and I asked um, I asked this, the class, the question I ask often is, what if government didn't do that? What if tomorrow the governor of Indiana said there will be no more government funding of any schools, all public schools are closed down, all public school teachers are, are terminated, uh, there's no more money for schools, it will all be done privately. Would, would parents across Indiana just shrug their shoulders and say, well, I guess my kids are going to be stupid? Or are there solutions found elsewhere in the institution of community, in the institution of business, that that would pick up where government had left off. And a lot of those solutions that that class came up with were based in the idea of mutual benefit. Business would do this because it's important to the business, but it's also beneficial to the student. Communities would come together and do this because they get Maybe it's personal satisfaction of being a contributor. Maybe it's 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 love of, of helping people, but they benefit by helping others benefit. And when you see this absence of coercion, you see opportunities to deliver mutual benefit through cooperation and through competition. So we're living through an unprecedented moment in education history right now as a result of the COVID pandemic. In February of this year, there were more than 55 million students enrolled in K-12 education through largely traditional schools. By mid-March, nearly 100% of those 55 million students were learning from home with their families. That change was dramatic and rapid. And so what has happened as a result? What we've seen happen as a result is tremendous self-organizing by parents, by families, by communities, by governments, and by businesses to try to meet the needs for educating children in a way that they are safe, that their development continues, that their emotional needs are met, that their physical needs are met. And so this has been a Herculean task. And I'll tell you, it hasn't been perfect. It's been messy. It's been chaotic. Um, there has been an incredible amount of both admiration for the efforts of, of teachers and schools to meet the needs of, of kids. And there's also been an incredible amount of frustration when schools have failed to meaningfully continue the academic progression of students. So what's happening now? We're in the middle of summer. School's getting ready to start again this fall. And there are a huge amount of unknowns. Will students be attending virtually? Will they be attending schools in a hybrid fashion? 
Will they be live and co-located with their students at their prior school locations? Or will they be homeschooled? Families are grappling with this right now. But you know what? The American spirit is strong. Ingenuity is off the charts in American society. And families are figuring it out. Now, it's going to be messy. It's not going to be perfect. But what we, what we are seeing is we are seeing the kind of mutual benefit that you described. We're seeing things like school districts working with the local YMCA and the Boys and Girls Club and then contributing teachers to come and lead small cohorts of students so that they can be safe and yet continue their learning. We're seeing cities and uh, school districts come together to offer alternatives. We're seeing private philanthropy engage. And so again, while, while we're not in a status quo situation, we are not in a return to normal back to where we were in February of 2020, what we are seeing is we're seeing, we're seeing people adapt and be flexible and invent and experiment and try to find a way so that kids will continue on their academic journey. They will also continue on their athletic or their musical journey, their arts journey, and they, but they will do so in ways that were different than any of us could have ever imagined as recently as six or seven months ago. There's a, there's a lot that I want to unpack there because there's a lot that you just said, but it goes to one of the, the facts that when we talk about breaking barriers, we're not just talking about breaking external barriers, but those internal barriers. And there's an internal barrier that we find in foundational education across the spectrum, except, as I've said, in our anarchist friends. And that's this idea that if government doesn't do it, it won't get done. And we're seeing that without government doing it, we are still getting it done. Now, you, you commented it's going to be messy, and it is. Guess what? Change is messy sometimes. And there is no perfect solution. One of the, the biggest objections I've, I've received is, what about kids who go home and they're being abused? And if you know government doesn't do this, then they'll continue to get abused. It's important to recognize that there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. There's not going to be a perfect solution for any of this. Any of the PIs we have, there, there is no perfect solution. There are only trade-offs. And we have to look at what trade-offs we are making and the best trade-offs for, for everyone. And then we can deal with those problems as they come up. But yeah, it is going to be messy. This, this is why, and I think this leads into our next uh, mutually reinforcing principle quite well. This is why openness is so important. In, instead of having this rigid system of this is the only way it can be done because people in the 1800s said so. We need to have openness in education. So the quick definition, equal rights and mutual benefit foster openness by allowing the free movement of ideas, resources, and people that generate knowledge, innovation, and opportunity, fueling progress throughout society. If you don't have openness in education, then you're not allowing the free movement of ideas, resources, and people to generate knowledge, innovation, and opportunity. And I can't imagine a, a bigger barrier to the vision of foundational education than a closed system. Yes, if we want to see our education systems evolve to their rightful role, then they must be dynamic. Education has to enable knowledge sharing. It has to enable experimentation in order to, to inform new and better methods of educational delivery. 
Why is that so important? Well, innovation, innovation not only informs new models of delivery, but it also has the benefit of helping improve existing models of delivery. So if we are open to new ideas and experimentation, we're going to see all methods improve over time. We've seen how that works in every other part of our society. Education is not immune to these same forces. Let's take this uh, COVID pandemic for a moment. There are changes that are happening to the delivery of education as a result of the pandemic. While we never would have wished this on anyone, when we look ahead going forward, it makes no sense to go back to the way things were, and it makes complete sense to take the best of what we were doing before and then couple that with what we've learned that enabled us to be even more effective through this experience so that we get to a better place on the other side. So I would see this as very similar to what we're experiencing in the business community. So pre-COVID, so much of our work was co-located work. A lot of travel was required. If you think about office settings or commercial settings, face-to-face -face and in-person meetings, well, the necessity of the COVID pandemic has created new ways of, it, of human engagement in a work context, right? So we are engaging over video conferencing calls. We are engaging using technology. We're finding other methods to accomplish the task. So what happens once the, once the virus is better under control? Do we go back to doing things the way we did before? Or do we take the best of the old together with the new and form a new forge a new path forward? That's what I think we're really talking about in education. So how do we take how students were educated before, take the positives from how they were educated before, couple that with what we've learned, the experimentation and the new methods that we've learned over the last six months, and then forge a path to a new way forward that's even better to rock the world of even more kids. You mentioned it before. I want to make sure that we cover this self-actualization for such a society of mutual benefit and uh, equal rights for such a society where, you know, people are succeeding by helping others improve their lives. We need to have the key institution of education, communities, business, government, remove rather than erect barriers to people realizing their potential and finding fulfillment. As more people have the opportunity to use their unique talents to succeed by helping others improve their lives, society flourishes. Uh, I was just reading Maslow on management yesterday and just brilliant work. But, you know, we, we hear Maslow in this, that people have their own unique aptitudes, their own unique talents. And <clears throat> do you feel that right now the system of foundational education as it exists right now stifles the growth, the, the development of those talents? And I, I would assume, obviously, that the vision that we have would remove those barriers to allow those talents to flourish. So true education is not the same as schooling, right? And so schooling will work for a certain percentage of the population. Does it work for everyone? It doesn't work for everyone. When we're talking about true education, true education is an education that allows every student to self-actualize, meaning they're able to, to develop their talents and succeed on their own terms in their areas where they have strengths and where they have interest. So 
when when you have a true education that enables stu that enables students to be focused on how can I develop my talents in order to make a contribution in life, and that's a, a uniquely individualized experience. When we think about schooling, I would say schooling would be the opposite of self-actualization. Schooling is a standardized process that you then process students through. Now, will some of the students end up on the other side being very fulfilled, self-actualized individuals? Sure. But are you optimizing for that outcome? I would say you're not. Is there anything that we have we need to talk about? Anything that you wanted to cover but we haven't talked about yet. I would think about a question about education policy or, you know, what would contribute to the most favorable education environment? If you ask me a question along those lines, then I could tell you how we think about education policy because we think about it in terms of, of a, a list of, like we have eight questions that we ask, which are, so rather than saying, um, People will often ask us, okay, what, what education policy do you support? Do you support private school choice? Is that what it is? So as long as it's private school choice, Bill, we're good? We're like, no, no, that's not actually how we think about it. We think about it in terms of these eight questions. So what are those eight questions? Okay, so when we're thinking about whether or not to weigh in on a policy decision or to advance a policy, we ask ourselves eight questions about the policy. So does this policy, one, contribute to a diversity of solutions? Does the policy, two, let families choose what works best? Does it, three, allow students to customize their education? Four, ensure funding is attached to the student. Five, encourage innovation and experimentation. Six, build community support. Seven, does the policy rely on the belief that every kid is capable? And eight, does the policy apply to every student? So when we're making a decision as a stand together community, whether to support or oppose an education policy, we will ask those eight questions and then determine the extent to which a policy opportunity advances each of those eight concepts or actually counters each of those eight concepts. Do you think the the, edu the education or the schooling system that we have now in America, do you think that's, do you think it's doing more harm than good right now? I would say on balance, our education system does, does more good than harm. I think of this um, along the lines of, of MBM. You don't ever get out of this hospital, right? So how are we doing on a scale of 1 to 10? Maybe we're at a 2 or a 3 right now. Could we do a hell of a lot better? Yes, we could do a lot better. How do we get there? We get there by reorienting our society and our culture to the true purpose of education, which is all about unleashing the potential of each and every kid. It's not about sorting and ranking and measuring against a common benchmark. It's about ensuring that every student becomes the best version of themselves. Do our current systems do that today? For some students, they do. Do they do that for enough students? Absolutely not. We need to ensure that every student is able to unleash their potential. So that's why we're gonna continue working on this. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this installment of Top Priority, where we discuss ideas for human flourishing. Once again, I'm Dwayne Lester, and I want to say a big thank you to Meredith Olson for taking the time to talk to us about foundational education. 
If you have any questions about this particular priority initiative, or you know what, just any priority initiative in particular, or if there's something you want to hear more about, please send us an email at toppriority at afphq.org. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know what you think. And we'd love for you to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. Until next time, take care and we'll see you then.